Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Now, why do we want to do a study of Passover? Obviously, we're coming into the Passover season. We're coming to Easter for the church. We said it's Palm Sunday today, so loads of reasons. But I believe that as we enter the Easter season for the church in this part of the world, unless we have an understanding of Passover, we really won't appreciate the full depths of it. The background a study like this can bring out will really open up the Word of God to you. And that, as those of you who know me, that's one of my greatest joys is to see people just open up the Word of God and, and feed on the Word of God. So hopefully we can do that today. Also, it's the first Sunday of the month. So usually we would be taking communion together as a church. So we will be doing a communion service at the end of this teaching. I'll be leading like a virtual service. So uh, just a reminder now, if you in your own houses, if you have your elements, if you get them ready, we will be doing that at the end. Now the way we're doing this, we're not doing a, a full Passover Seder, so I'm going to be mixing parts of a traditional Seder, part of Messianic Seder, uh, with some sort of teaching elements as we go. Now there are 15 steps in a traditional Seder, like I said we, we'll do two or three of these as examples, the ones that are really the most instructive for us as we look to Christ. So the first step in the Seder would be the kindling of the candles and this will be the woman of the house who would traditionally kindle the candles and she will come and she will say this blessing and I'll say this for us now it says Baruch Atar Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kirishanu Bamitzvah Tov V'tzivanu Lehadlik Neshel Yom Tov Blessed are you O Lord our God King of the universe who sanctifies us with your commandments and commanded us to kindle the light of the holiday. And then it said, as the woman begins the Seder and gives light to the Passover table, so it was a woman who began the redemptive career of the Messiah, our Passover, by giving birth to the light of the world. And one thing you'll see about this holiday, this is just the first step, and you can easily see how even now we have Christ at the center of it. Everything in this sort of Seder will point to Christ. Um, Isaiah 9.2 is often read at this point. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. That is the first step and that is how the Passover Seder is opened. Now let me share with you what's called the Cup of Miriam. Now this is a modern edition. You might not have heard it. If you've been to a Messiah in the Passover demonstration before, you may not have encountered this one. This is one of the newer elements that some synagogues will put into the Passover Seder. And obviously because of that, there's a bit of uh, argument and debate between the more traditional Orthodox and the Reformed synagogues. But you do find it in quite a few Messianic Seders. And th the reason will hopefully become obvious. I'll share that with you now. So it's the cup of Miriam. Now I like it because... It draws out a really interesting piece of Jewish history, which again illuminates a part of the New Testament text for us. And again, that's what I want to do here, is open up the scriptures to you. So Miriam's cup is uh, given to be in honor of the role of women in Jewish history. Miriam was, of course, uh, Moses's sister. If you know the story, she helped the Jewish people escape from Egypt during the Exodus. And likewise, it's no mistake as we know, there are no mistakes in the Bible. Everything is preordained in that sense. Yeshua's mother, Jesus' mother, was also called Miriam. We refer to her as Mary, her real name being Miriam. So this is Miriam's cup. And as water 
is poured into this cup. You'll notice this is water, not wine. Everything else in a Passover meal is wine, but this is water in this cup. And it's said that this is the cup of Miriam, the cup of living waters. Now, while that's so um, uh, crucial, is because of a piece of Jewish tradition from the Midrash that I will share with you now. During, it's, it's believed during the wilderness wanderings, there was a miraculous rock uh, that acted as a well of living water. And this accompanied the Israelites through the desert and provided them with fresh water. And it's this that Moses tapped and the water came out. It's that rock that they're referring to. And the tradition, uh, later tradition, was that this rock was given to the Israelites in honor of Miriam to her devotion to the Jewish people. It's quite often referred to as the well of Miriam, the rock the well of living water. So both Miriam and the rock, the well of living water, were sources of life and healing in the desert. They were literally their lifeline in the desert. Now what's so interesting about this, we might just hear that and think that's just a quaint bit of Jewish tradition, but the Apostle Paul makes reference to this in the New Testament. And this is why I've included this in our Seder. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 4. Let's read this text together. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now you can see the sort of the language here that Paul is making reference to this well-known Jewish story about this rock following the Israelites around. And he now says to them, that rock was Christ following you around. It was a spiritual rock. The spiritual, the living waters that they physically had were representative of the spiritual and living waters that Christ would give them. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus was the source of life for the Jews in the desert. He was the living waters just back then just as he is today isaiah 55 verse 1 lo everyone who thirsts come to the waters john 7 verse 38 he who believes in me as the scripture said from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water this is the cup of miriam now the preparations for passover do start uh, usually about a week before if not more but so we're in that period now and there's a lot that Jewish people will be doing around the house right now the main thing is is what we call spring cleaning um, this is where spring cleaning actually comes from it's it's a search around the house to remove leaven from the household this is usually done with a lulav a feather and it's quite ceremonial we won't go through through all the sort of liturgy that they have with it but up until this time you are cleansing your house of leaven we have a similar thing with lent and pancake day that's where all these sorts of things come from now remember in exodus chapter 12 we'll read it a little later the the command was to use unleavened bread and this is why we remove all leaven from the household but there's another sort of secondary meaning to this because in the scriptures in the bible uh, sin is often pictured as leaven so leaven is often spiritually a picture of sin because leaven sort of puffs up in that way particularly pride is what leaven is often used to the sin of pride remember the verse in galatians 5 9 paul the apostle paul he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough matthew 16 11, jesus says beware the leaven of the pharisees and in mark 8 5 you even have beware the leaven of herod 
So this is the symbol of leaven being typical of sin. That's why this whole ritual of uh, removing leaven from your household is extremely significant in the Gospels here. Again, the Apostle Paul makes reference to this. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. He says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul here uses the Passover principle and he applies it to our spiritual life. He's, what he's basically saying is, as the Jewish people would be cleansing their house of leaven before the Passover, so we should be confessing the sins in our life before we come to the communion table. This is the concept of, you know, the 1 Corinthians, he speaks a lot about communion. Um, this is what he's saying here. As we approach Passover, we use it as a time of self-reflection. We remove things in our lives that may be harmful. We confess our sins. And again, this is the background, the Pascal background that the Apostle Paul has in this statement in 1 Corinthians 11 that everyone knows about taking the cup in an unworthy manner. Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. But a man must examine himself. And this is what it's referring to, removing leaven. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Okay, so th this is what he's saying. We remove the leaven. This search for leaven, this symbolic search for leaven around the household had very practical spiritual application for us today. Now, one more amazing connection between the whole concept of removing leaven, the gospel, and how it relates to the Christian faith. If we go back to the first century, as we are now Palm Sunday, it's, we've just, this is Palm Sunday, so that's when the triumphal en entry happened, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. This was the week before Passover. We go into this Passion Week now. Um, at that time, as the Jewish people were cleansing leaven from their own houses in preparation for the Passover, after the triumphal entry, what does Jesus do? Now, where was Jesus' house? I know he had no, no house to lay his head, but he did have a house. He called it his father's house. This was the temple. This is why when you see the next passage of scripture after the triumphal entry, what does he do? He goes straight to the temple and he cleans the temple. What's he doing there? He's, he's partaking of the Passover ceremony. He's cleansing his house of leaven. He's cleansing his house of sin. This is what we have here. It says in Matthew 21, verse 12 to 13, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. You see, the Gospels are specifically structured around the Pascal narrative. In fact, the whole Bible is in many ways. We'll see that a little more as we go through. But what we have here is the triumphal entry. We then have the, uh, the cleansing of the leaven in preparation for Passover. Another thing that would be happening at this time is that they would be inspecting all the lambs to check that they were spotless and unblemished. And we see this mirrored in the gospel narratives too, because after this event, you'll notice that Jesus is then questioned and tried by the Herodians, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees at this time. And it leads up until that final declaration that I find no guilt in this man. And we see that Jesus was himself too, a spotless, unblemished lamb. 
You see, I told you how much Passover was in the Bible and why a deeper understanding of this festival will just help us as we come into this season to see the depth in the scriptures. Now, let's read the narrative in Exodus chapter 12. We're going to read it in full because this is what you would do at a Seder and it will help us all with the context as we move forward. Now, before that, I just want to make a couple of other... um, Before we go into the text, let's make a couple of other observations. The Exodus motif, this sort of theme that we're about to read in the scriptures, is one of the largest uh, sort of meta-narratives, themes that we find in the Bible. Whenever you see words like slavery and bondage, sacrifice, redemption, freedom, liberation, many of these are, are New Testament terms that we have, particularly in Paul's writings. These are all Exodus motifs. Okay, so they're they're not just in the Old Testament, they're also in the New Testament. The Gospel of John, for example, is probably one of the most Jewish Gospels because it's based around the feast, the festal calendar. And you see this uh, a lot in the Gospel of John. But the whole Gospel is actually really uh, formed and structured about in its narrative around three great Passover truths. And you find them both at the beginning, the middle and the end of the Gospel. The first Passover truth, remember, John is in the very first chapter, John 1, 29. This is proclaimed by a Jewish prophet. What does he say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is Passover language. The second Passover truth. It's not a Jewish prophet now. Now it's a high priest, Caiaphas, the high priest. In the middle point of John's gospel, what does he say? It is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. This is the concept of substitutionary atonement that we find in the Paschal Lamb here. And then at the end of the Gospel, the third Passover truth is proclaimed by a Gentile pagan who declares that the Lamb is without blemish. And this is Pilate, obviously, after all the trials have taken place. Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. That's John chapter 19. So you see, the whole Gospel, is the whole narrative is structured around the the theme of Passover and I believe God wants us to know and be very secure in our salvation so he provided these three witnesses to us and you know that on the evidence of two or three witnesses a matter shall be confirmed Deuteronomy chapter 19 by the blood of the lamb we can be sure that we are now children of God let's read the text now as we get into the Passover context you remember Israel had gone down into Egypt while Joseph was there There was that big, amazing um, reuniting of the tribes of Israel. And then a new Pharaoh arose who started to oppress the Israelites. And then we have the story of leading into the story of Moses and the ten plagues of Egypt. So we'll pick pick this up now. Let's read the text in Exodus chapter 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. That's why often in a Passover Seder you'll hear the phrase, that this, why is this night different from all other nights? It's the most important night in that sense. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbour nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall make some 
of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they are to eat. They shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire and they shall, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it, uh, of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs and its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Now this is the history, and that last verse there, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. This is where we get the concept of a, se uh, a seder. That's what that means, an order of service. And this is one of the, uh, the longest running religious festivals uh, in the world in some respects. It has been celebrated continually since this day, pretty much. Now, let's just sum up what we've read here. To escape this final judgment, this final plague, which was the death of the firstborn, the Israelites are instructed to slay a Passover lamb that has been kept and is unblemished, and they are to slay it and apply the blood to the doorpost of their house, and then it says that the Lord will pass over that house. Now, we know, we know that story quite well. Now, I want to just make some connection with it now to the New Testament, because this is where, for me, it gets very interesting. So all of the feasts of Israel, if you, if you read the Old Testament, the whole of the sort of the festel calendar of Israel is, is designed around the spring feasts and the fall feasts. And all the spring feasts do have an application in one way, and all the full feasts do too. Um, they all commemorate, obviously, a historical event, which is quite literal, uh, and it is historical, but they also have another application, and that is they look forward to a future Christological fulfillment. The spring feasts do with, deal with the first coming, the full feasts generally relate to the second coming. And this is not just sort of some weird spiritualizing. The, the Apostle Paul, again, makes reference to this. Let me read the text to you. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath day things, which are a mere shadow of what is to come but the substance belongs to Christ Colossians chapter 2 the festivals are a shadow in that sense and the real fulfillment the substance of them belongs to Christ and we see this probably most clearly I believe with the Passover because we're all so familiar with the idea of Jesus being the fulfillment as the Passover lamb now we see this not just like I've already explained not just in the Passover lamb but all throughout the Bible the Gospels are structured around the Passover. Everything in some way does come back to Passover because the sacrifice of Christ is obviously uh, the long-awaited appointed time. It's what everything builds into, looks forward to, and anticipates in that sense. Now, the Passover, we have to pay attention because the Passover meal and a Seder, it's like a, a gospel parallel. It's like an acted-out parable, rather, a, ser a sermon that we do physically as we take and we eat and we drink. 
So we want to look at that. We'll get into that in a little bit more. But let me just show you how this relates a little bit more to the New Testament. When, you, when the Israelites were in Egypt, the language is very specific. It says that uh, you were brought out, in Exodus 20, brought out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Slavery is the term that we find being used. It also says in Joshua here, from the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So we get these two terms, slavery and bondage. This is how the Israelites were referred to as uh, their, their time in Egypt when they were slaves. It's being slaves and being in bondage. Now the parallel, obviously, Paul uses this same language in the New Testament. And we see this in Romans. It says in the New Testament, uh, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And then again in Romans, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage, into sin. So the parallel here is that just as the Israelites were in bondage and slavery in Egypt, we are in bondage and slavery to sin. There's no, it's not a coincidence that Paul is using these same terms and these same language. He's making a very definite connection with the Passover narrative. And yet he goes further than that. You see, when Passover happened and the, the Israelites left Egypt, it doesn't say they, they left Egypt. The language that is used is they were redeemed from Egypt. And, and all throughout the Bible, that is how it is always really referred to. It is a, a, a festival of redemption. It was a moment of great redemption for the Israelites. They were redeemed from the house of slavery. Deuteronomy 7.8 says that exactly. Now, how did they do that? They were redeemed again by sacrificing the lamb and applying the blood and being obedient to the command to do that by faith. And again, we see in the New Testament the exact same language being talked about as it talks about to our relationship with Jesus Christ. Probably most clearly in this verse that I have here, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 to 19. Peter writes, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now you see how that, that whole verse is just infused with Passover and Exodus language there. They were redeemed, there was a lamb, it was spotless, it was unblemished, but now it is the blood of Christ. Paul makes it even clearer later in, the, in 1 Corinthians, he actually says Christ our Passover is sacrificed and we've seen John the Baptist declaration of Jesus being the lamb of God. This is why at Easter time we have lots of little lambs all around the place. Many people assume that is just because it's springtime and the lambs will soon be in the field. That's how generally the consensus in the public is. The point is these are Passover lambs. These are sacrificed lambs. They are supposed to be representative of Jesus. That's why it's quite common to see a picture of a lamb with a victory banner or a cross behind it, like a little like on the screen there at the time. Uh, and this is what we have. And this is the, the theology behind the festival of Passover. It's so rich, we could, kind of like peeling an onion, we could go so much deeper. We're going to change pace a little bit now, and I want to relate some of this to the actual ordinances in the Passover Seder. Now, we'll look at this in the context of the Last Supper. We'll mix it in with what we do in an actual Seder in front of us, and hopefully we can get some more depth from this festival. Now, when we think of the Last Supper. I know many people do think of the, the typical sort of view that we have here, Leonardo da Vinci's uh, Last Supper. 
Of course, such a gathering of so many people today would be uh, full foul of social distancing rules and you would get uh, probably in trouble for that. So people would end up using Zoom. And as you can tell here, people have way too much time on their hands during this lockdown period and they make memes like this. Uh, I've seen lots of them. They're all wrong. It probably was much more likely something like this. Uh, the Passover, they would have been very low to the floor on either a round table or a triclinium shaped table. And they would have been leaning on one side and using one hand to do that. And Jesus would have been officiating that meal. So that's a much more uh, accurate picture there. Now, if you've ever seen a Passover table, one of the big things you'll notice, uh, the sort of the centerpiece of a Passover table is the big Passover plate. Um, you can see it on there and on that Passover plate there'll be a, a shank bone, an egg, bitter herbs, sweet paste, parsley and lettuce. These things are very interesting, particularly the egg, because there's a lot of people who like to go around and talk about eggs being pagan symbols around Easter time. But I tell you the egg there on the Passover plate was to represent the sacrifice that happened in the temple. Okay, this is why, and this is why there's early, a lot of early church traditions in the Orthodox tradition where they would paint red eggs to sacrifice, uh, to represent the blood, and these sorts of things. But that's another issue, we won't go into that too much now. I'll go through a couple of the things that we do as part of the Seder to give you a flavour for it. Like I said, there are 15 steps in a Seder, we, we are just jumping in and out at various different elements. One of the main things that people always do uh, you can see there's parsley on the on the plate there. This is the one of the herbs. Now it's green. It has to be a green leaf because green is a symbol of spring. Spring is a symbol of youth in that sense. And, and the ceremony really symbolizes when Israel was a young nation in the springtime of its nationhood. God saved Israel by means of the salt waters of the Red Sea. That's through the Exodus. So what they will do is they'll have a little bowl of water. It will be salt water. There'll be poor salt in that. And you take the parsley, you dip it in, and then you eat it. And that the whole thing is supposed to remind you. It's like, again, like it's an acted out sermon, basically, that we're talking about here. It reminds you of the, the redemption, again, from Egypt. Now, another thing is the eating of the bitter herbs. Uh, one of those elements there is bitter herbs, usually horseradish, not, uh, not horseradish with mayonnaise like we would have today. It's usually just raw off the root, much stronger in that sense, much more bitter. Um, and this was to symbolize the bitterness of slavery in Egypt and also for the Messianic community, our bitterness of being in bondage to sin. And the tears that this produces when you eat it are supposed to be a reminder shared by the Israelites as they were um, in slavery at this time. And what would happen with this bitter herb quite often is everyone will take a piece of matzah bread, which is the, the flat unleavened bread. They'll put the bitter herbs in it and they'll, they'll eat it like that. And a lot of people relate this to, to John chapter 13, verses 25 and 27, where it says this, He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. This is the, the bitter herb that most people are thinking of, which is quite pointing when you consider what he's doing here. Because it says, so when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the one who obviously would betray him at that time. Now, another part of the Seder is eating uh, the chasareth, as they call it. This is the sort of brown paste that you see there. 
that this is a mixture of apple, cinnamon, and honey, and it's very sweet. It's supposed to be complete opposite of the bitter herbs. And it symbolized the bricks and the mortar that were that the Israelites used to build the bricks uh, for the cities of Pharaoh. And they make what they call a matzah sandwich here. So they take, again, two pieces of unleavened bread, and you'll put this in between, and you eat that. These are just a couple of the elements. And then we have, uh, let's talk about the, the main ones, would be the lamb shank, obviously, that you can see there, the shank bone of a lamb. I'm sure this is obvious now. We've talked about this. This is to represent the Passover lamb. We've seen how Jesus is the fulfillment of that lamb. But even in the Old Testament, you get the, the lamb concept coming through. In the most famous verse, Isaiah 53, verse 7, it says, He was oppressed, speaking of this servant, this suffering servant, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Now, a lot of uh, Jews today will not have a lamb bone on their, their Passover table. The reason is that they don't want to be seen to have sacrificed or be partaking in a sacrifice of the lamb that is outside of the temple vicinity. So they substitute it with a chicken's neck or, or various, a chicken usually of some sort. Um, you'll find that. Messianic uh, Jewish people having a Seder do quite often have the lamb, having seen that ultimate fulfillment. But this is what it's uh, picturing here. And then one of the other main things that you have is the unleavened bread. Or the matzah bread, as we call it. And if you're part of our church, you'll notice this is what we take communion with. Hopefully this will become clear as we go through why we do that. Three things had to be, uh, the matzah had to fulfill three requirements. Firstly, it is unleavened. You'll notice it's flat. This was from the command in Exodus that they had to eat very quickly, eat the, the feast to make haste. It was not, there was no time for it to rise in that sense. It is unleavened. That means it's flat. If you can see closely there on the screen, it is also striped and it is also pierced. Quite often at a Seder now, a, a whole sheet would be held up in front of the candles that have been lit so you can see the light coming through it. It is pierced. And then this bit of liturgy is read. Even so, the Messiah was unleavened. That is, he was sinless. And even so, the Messiah was striped. That is, by way of the Roman whip. And even so, the Messiah was pierced. That is, by the nails in his hands and in his feet and by the spear in his side. Concerning the stripes, it is written, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. John 19.1 But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with, this, with his stripes... We are healed, Isaiah 53, verse 5. And concerning the piercing, it is written, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn, Zechariah 12:10. I hope you can see the parallel here. Jesus is the living bread. John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now this becomes interesting. You see, this is why I believe it's very important that uh, the churches do actually use unleavened bread for their, for their communion service because it's part of acting out this parable. I'm not going to get legalistic about it, but... The whole point is that the body is supposed to be sinless and it's striped and it's pierced. It's a beautiful picture 
of the body of Christ. Now one of the most interesting elements of a Seder is what's called the ceremony of the Afikomen. Now what you will, I'll try and just briefly explain it to you. So there is um, a bag that you'll have on a Passover table. The, the one on the screen there is you, if you look closely, the actual main bit of matzah is actually a bag and there's three compartments in it with the, the separate three sheets of matzah bread in, in them. So what happens during this ceremony is that during the beginning of the meal, the middle sheet of matzah is removed from that pouch and it is broken in half. Now half of it is distributed and that's what they use for, for the sandwiches and those sorts of things. The other half is then wrapped in a white cloth and it is placed below the table and it's left there as they continue through uh, the main Passover Seder and the meal. And then after the meal, this piece of matzah bread that was taken from the middle matzah is then brought back up, it is then broken and it is then spread out for everyone to take. Now what's obviously for the messianic seders you can see the parallels forming from this so you have uh, one matzotash bag with three parts in it in that sense and obviously in Jewish tradition these represent maybe the three patriarchs some people say the three different types of Israelites but of course uh, these represent the, what, the, the, the three person, persons in the one Godhead Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it is the middle piece, the Son, that is taken out, removed from its place of fellowship, come down to earth, broken, buried, resurrected, and then distributed to the disciples. You see how powerful that is. So when we read in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, For I received from the Lord that which, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. It wasn't just a, a little piece of bread that was on the table. It was a specific piece of unleavened bread showing that it was sinless. It was a piece of bread that had been striped and that had been pierced, that had come from fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, come down to earth, that had been broken, that had been buried and then been resurrected again and then distributed. And as we know, the, the symbolism for that is that as we just read from John 6, when we, when, we, uh, when we accept Christ into our life, we become partakers of the divine nature in that sense. And this is what it's talking about here. So it's much, much more than just a piece of bread. Okay? It's an acted out parable teaching the richness and the depths of what Christ did for us. And this is why we, we use matzah bread for our communion services, because it was this part of the ceremony when he instituted the communion uh, the ordinance of communion and the Lord's Supper. It's amazing, really, how, how this happens. Let, let's go a little bit further. Sorry, that's the, uh, the, the text I just read there. The next thing that is noticeable at a Passover Seder is the four cups. And let's just talk about these for a, a little bit of time now before we wrap up. There were four cups, one of blessing, the cup of blessing, the cup of plagues, the cup of redemption, and the cup of praise. Now, it is the third cup that is taken in the order of the Seder after the meal, after supper. You see, it is the cup of redemption. And it has a special place because it's the most important cup in that sense because it represents the blood of the Passover lamb. And it was obviously the blood that redeemed the Israelites from slavery and redeemed us from death in that sense. Concerning this cup, it is written, and in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten. Notice it does identify it as the cup 
that was taken after the meal, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You see, Jesus now uses the cup of redemption that was to represent the, the blood of the Passover lamb that was sacrificed to now again teach that this is now the cup of the greater redemption, which will be the ordinance that you now use it for in the Lord's Supper. And interestingly, the Mishnah, the, the Jewish uh, commentary, records that this cup of wine at the Seder was to be mixed with warm water. So it would be wine with warm water, again, to represent that it is blood of the Passover lamb. And this is interesting because we have that text, remember, in John 19, uh, 33. It records this about Jesus. Coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Do you, again, you see how this fulfillment is just being fulfilled with the, the gospel narrative of Jesus Christ here. And it's so much. So it was with these two elements, the matzah bread from the Afikoman ceremony that had been broken, been buried and been resurrected, was sinless, was pierced and was striped. That is what he says when he says, this is my body. And it's this cup of redemption that was mixed with warm water that represented the Pascal lamb sacrifice that he now says, this is the cup of the new covenant. You see, there's just so much depth uh, to this Passover season. And I hope we can just take these things away, you'll dwell on them. And, and when we take communion now at the end of our service here, uh, it'll have a whole new element and depth to it. Let me just briefly share one, one last thing. Um, the fourth cup is called the cup of praise or the cup of restoration, some people call it. And this is interesting because Matthew 26, 29 is often associated with this part of the Seder where Jesus says, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, the cup of praise. But it seems to be that Jesus implies that he is not going to partake of this fourth cup at this time. He did not do it. And this tells us that there is some element of the Passover that is not finished yet. And it awaits a future celebration in the millennial kingdom. Jesus says he will do it when it comes in our kingdom. And if you know about the millennial kingdom from the Old Testament prophets, one of the things that the Old Testament, uh, the, the messianic kingdom begins with is a banquet, a feast. It's actually a wedding feast. And again, this ties in with the third cup. One of the other names for the third cup, the cup of redemption, was the cup of betrothal. If you know that the whole uh, covenant with uh, the Israelites on Mount Sinai is considered what they call a ketubah, which is a, a wedding contract. And that's why you see through the Old Testament, Israel referred to as the wife of Jehovah. And that's why this is such a big theme. Now, Jesus is again using the cup of redemption, the cup of betrothal, and he's saying that now this is a new wedding contract in that sense. And from that moment on, how do you have the church referred to? We are referred to as the bride of Christ. And when you see the kingdom coming, it is actually the wedding feast that we have as the ultimate fulfillment of Passover here. So it has both a, a past historical event, a current event for the church, but also a future event. You see, everything in the scriptures, beginning, middle and end, somehow comes back to the Passover lamb. And everything I believe in this world comes back to the Passover lamb at some point. This is where history is headed, it's where we are right now, and it's where we have been in the past. The important thing for us to ask today is, do we know the Passover lamb? Because he is still the saviour, he is here to save us. 
And as we take communion, as we, Doug was explaining to the children earlier, it is that time in our hearts now to realize that although there is shaking in the world, just as there was with the Israelites in slavery, God is a redeeming God. God is the one who wants to save us. And just as then, as they applied the blood, we apply the blood of Jesus Christ to our life by faith. And he cleanses us from our sin. We confess it to him. And then we are secure as children of God. And we will be with Christ in his coming kingdom. And we have no reason to fear because perfect love casts out fear. And that is the tonic for this world, whatever may be going on in this world. This is the real message of Passover. At the end of a Seder, I'll read the liturgy now for you. It says this, The service thus performed will be acceptable to God. And the order of the Passover is now accomplished as prescribed, according to all its formalities and customs, as we had the privilege to arrange it. Oh, may we also merit the actual observance thereof. O oh, pure dweller on high, raise up your people, of whom it is said, who can number them? O oh, hasten to lead the shoots of your plant, and to bring the redeemed to Zion with joyful song. In a coming year in Jerusalem is how it's always ended at the Passover meal. Now, for a Messianic Seder, it's now commonplace to take partake of an actual communion service, which we will now do. It is obviously a virtual service, so this is the time if you could all gather your elements up together, and I'll lead us in doing this. I want to just give us a few minutes to get our hearts right. Remember, this is the time where we would be cleansing the leaven from our homes. And the home, in that sense, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit now. We cleanse the leaven from our life just by confessing our sins. So we'll just uh, have a, cut, a minute or so of silence. And then I'm going to read the liturgy and I'll say the blessings that we would find in the service and lead us in prayer, first the bread and then the wine. But let's just have a moment now just to, to get your heart right with the Lord. And then I'll lead us together. So it is written, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians. And then for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then the blessing is, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth the true bread from heaven. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your body, Lord, that you came to this world, that you died on the cross for us, that you did it for us, Lord God, that even while we were sinners, you died for us. Your body was broken, it was scourged, Lord God. Oh, Lord, the depth of your love for us, it is amazing. And we thank you, Lord, for that so much. And as we partake now as a, a body of Christ, although we are separated physically, we know we are one. But we have unity, Lord, by the fellowship of the Spirit with the saints. And we just thank you for that, Lord. Let's take together. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 1 Corinthians 11:25. Baruchatar Adonai Elohenu Melech Olam Borei Peri Hagafin Hamitit Yeshua Hamashiach. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine, Yeshua. 
the Messiah. And Father, as we come now just to remember your shed blood for us, we thank you, Lord, that it cleanses us from all sin, Lord, that it removes it as far as the east is from the west, Lord God. We thank you for that so much. Uh, we pray that you will help us at this time, Lord, to have the joy of our salvation. We pray, Lord, that we would have a, a boldness, Lord, to speak about you to people at this time when people are searching after you, Lord God. We pray for the fellowship that we have with our families uh, through online mediums, anything that we have, Lord God. We thank you for that. But ultimately, Lord, we thank you that we will be with you at that kingdom banquet, at that fulfillment of Passover, Lord, because you have saved us. You are the Passover lamb. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.